Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and put them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. It's my podcast and I'll clash if I want to. Clash if I want to. Clash if I want to. You would clash too if the podcaster was you. Hello everyone and welcome to Album Clash. Uh, so the astute listeners amongst you, or, or those who've read the notes before pressing play, will realise that it is just me today. Yeah, Kev has uh, had some personal stuff that he's had to deal with, so hasn't been available to do our scheduled recording, unfortunately. So in a change to our scheduled programming, we will not today be starting our Clash of Pulps, different Clash versus Arctic Monkeys, whatever people say I am, that's what I am not. We will save that for when Kev is available. Uh, But I did want to put something out so that those of you who very much enjoy us coming in your ears every other Thursday will not miss out on your usual fix of Album Clash. So what am I going to do since it's just me here today? I am going to go through the all-time Album Clash chart. Again, if you've looked at the title of this podcast, you've already worked that out, so why am I keeping it a mystery? Um, Yeah, I figured I'd go through... I mean, I'm not going to go through every single album we've ever done because I can't be bothered taking that long and you can't be bothered listening to it. So there you go. Um, But I figured I'd go through some of the stats, the worst albums we've reviewed, the best albums we've reviewed, and in the way that everything does when it runs out of creative ideas, I also figured I'd intersperse some clips from previous shows in there to make sure we hit our quota of episode releases whilst not actually producing new content. So, uh, yeah, soz. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, it's uh, just something I thought I wanted to do to put something out whilst Kev is unavailable. So... Some stats. I mean, this is very much one for the mathematicians amongst you. I mean, there's an entire feature on the show where we literally compare stats from the two albums we compare, so you cannot be surprised that I'm going to come out with you with some maths now. (laughs) Right. We have, in the history of Album Clash, reviewed 68 albums, spanning 47 years, the earliest being in 1962, the latest being in 2019. In terms of how those albums are spread across the ages, the least visited decade of those we have visited is the 2010s, where we only have two albums. They came in the same clash. We have eight albums from both the 2000s and the 1960s. The 1980s is our third most represented decade with 11 albums. We have 16 albums from the 1970s and, of course, it will come as no surprise whatsoever to regular listeners that our most visited decade is the 1990s. We have 23 albums that we have reviewed from that decade. In terms of scores... Our scores range. The lowest we have ever given an album is 9 out of 20, and they go all the way up to a perfect 20 out of 20. Uh, Both of those will come to over the course of this recap. Uh, The most popular score we have awarded is 16, which we have awarded to 10 different albums. I'll go through what each of those are in a bit. 
We have awarded six perfect tens between us, three each. Uh, Kev's most popular score is nine out of ten. Mine is not far behind. It is eight out of ten. Uh, the lowest score that Kev has ever given is three out of ten. We will definitely get to that album. Uh, and mine is four out of ten. We will also get to that album a bit later on. In terms of averages, Kev's mean average score is 7.7 with a median of 7.75. My mean average score is 7.8 with a median of 8. And our combined mean average is 15.5 with a median of 16. We have awarded albums the same score 20 times, by which I mean we have each given it the same score out of 10. And in terms of how we compare in terms of who scores higher, who scores lower, we have each scored higher than the other on 23 occasions. Uh, there are two albums that Kev was not involved in reviewing. That was Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks and Fleetwood Mac's Rumours, which I did with Shell in our bonus pod just before our second season started. And Shell scored both of those higher than I did. She awarded both of those two albums 9.5. Uh, we have had three draws in the history of Album Clash, which, when it comes to clashing, is not ideal. I would say nor is the fact that Kevin and I have avoided albums the same score 20 times, when the whole concept of the show is, you know, clashing and debate and jeopardy. And any Anyway, uh, so yes, we have awarded three draws in the history of Album Clash. The very first of those was when we compared two live albums, Johnny Cash's At Folsom Prison and Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace. We gave both of those 18 out of 20, and I just want to play you a little clip from how we reacted to that draw by talking about some very famous Sly Stallone films. Well, one very famous Sly Stallone film and one less famous Sly Stallone film that also starred John Walk and Pele. So here's that clip. I, can't, I cannot split them. They are both two phenomenal albums by two brilliant artists with great bands with them doing a live performance where you feel as though you're there. These are almost perfect albums. Uh, yeah, I'm going I'm going 9 out of 10. I'm going full shit out. I cannot split them. Do we have our first draw? We have scored both of these albums, 18 out of 20. Yeah, I, I cannot split them. Uh, so we, we have, in our third class, failed in our promise in the intro that two albums enter, only one may leave, because in this case, they're both walking away bloodied, but still very much alive. <laughs> I mean, I would I would use the analogy to say it's like the end of Rocky 1, but Rocky actually loses that. <laughs> so, so, so that's a very poor analogy. It's, just it's the a... end of Escape to Victory, which should in fact be called Escape to a Draw, because it finishes 4 <laughs> I mean, I mean, technically, the allies should probably uh, be deducted. Like, they should lose three. Well, they did. Because the to game be fair, a... they they left the pitch without a referee's permission. Which in exactly. So yeah, they they should all have been issued red cards. In which case, escape to lose. <laughs> yeah, the the Nazis won three nil um, by a walkover. <laughs> and that, that's the second reference to the Nazis on this clash. 
And, and clearly that's the true lesson to, to pull from Amazing Grace and at Folsom Prison. No, listen, so the last two clashes, there's been a clear winner. This one, there's just not, we've both said the same thing. It's just two attitudes between these two albums, so we're not going to... It, it, w- it would be churlish to, tr- to try and find some flaw or something in, in each album to, to pick one as the winner because they're both amazing testaments to two amazing artists yep. and i i think that's where we should leave it <laughs> so uh if you haven't seen escape to victory uh, it's not very good but it's worth a watch so there you go so just in terms of where things rank in our all-time chart there are some huge artists that we've covered that are lower than you would initially think they are in our ranking so we've done one album by queen and one album by david bowie now considering bowie is Kev's probably all-time favourite artist. He is languishing at number 41 in our all-time list, alongside Queen with their Live at Wembley album. Um, What's the Story Morning Glory by Oasis, their biggest selling album, one, one of the most celebrated albums of the 1990s. That only comes in at number 47 in our list. And I just want to play you back a clip from when we were going through that album and Kev's thoughts about possibly its most famous song. Here you go. So Wonderwall, named after the George Harrison album Wonderwall Music, and I have noted it down here as ruiner of many a party in the 90s due to some knobhead with an acoustic. Not guilty. I don't know what you're talking about. I've already told you, Stand By Me was my weapon of choice, so (laughs) fuck you. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It may not have been you, but you've been to those parties. (laughs) And I will will put money down that there will be lads who are still trying to oppress women by playing uh, Wonderwall very badly. Let us know. Send us a tweet. Send us an email. Are you one of the dickheads that played uh, Wonderwall at a party when you were pissed up in the 90s or since? Did you ruin someone else's good time? (laughs) Or did it ever work? Exactly. Did it work? Were you successful in wooing the girl or man that you were choosing to uh, serenade by playing Wonderball? Because that would be a turn up for the books. So what I also want to bring to the table, because they, like, again, the 90s was a fucking weird period of time. Notable cover version, Mike Flowers Pops, an easy listening version of this song that sold 200,000 copies and reached number two in the charts. Just two months after the release of the original version. Unfucking believable. Yep, yeah, it's great though, isn't it? What, the um, the Mike Flowers Pops version? Yeah. <laughs> it is. Sorry, I it mean, is. It's a great, it's a great easy listening version. I, I'm not going to... You can't claim to love Burt Bacharach and then say that's shite because <laughs> it fucking ain't. <laughs> I mean, there's something I didn't explore in that 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 pod, and and frankly, I think we need answers. What happened with Kev and Wonderwall and someone playing it at a party? Did did someone playing Wonderwall on acoustic steal someone that Kev was trying to get off with? Has Kev been cuckolded by someone with an acoustic guitar on Wonderwall? I mean, he's not here to defend himself, so uh, that is now fact. That did definitely happen. So <laughs> there you go. Um, 
So continuing that theme of artists being low, and you'd think so, Morning Glory clashed against Blur's Great Escape. So the only Blur album we have ever reviewed languishes all the way down at number 65 on our all-time list. And uh, we've talked about Bowie, one of Kev's favourite acts. One of my favourite bands of all time is U2. We've only done one of their albums, that being Rattle and Hum. And that is all the way down at number 51. Perhaps if Bono, The Edge, Adam Clayton and Lionel Mullen Jr. had paid more taxes, then they would be higher up our list. But they haven't, as we explain in this particular clip from when we went through Rattle and Hum. So, inherently linked with the previous song. Um, so, after the what you see in the film, the practice at the church, mm-hmm. you two go for a walkabout in Harlem yep. and come across blues duo Satan and Adam. Mm. And their composition, Freedom for My People, is what you hear for 40 seconds within within the album. And it's it's a nice interlude. It is. Like, you know, it works well. Well, I guess it, it works well as a segue into the song we're about to talk about. Mm-hmm. I think it makes more sense in the film than it does on the album, I have to say. <laughs> the one thing I've written. I hope they paid them royalties. <laughs> 14 million copies sold. Of course they didn't. They don't even pay their fucking tax. <laughs> I've been waiting a while to, to throw that one in. <laughs> Do you reckon Satan and Adam are fucking preparing the lawsuit? Where's our fucking iPod money? <laughs> but, you know, 14 million copies sold. Our fucking song's on your album, and it's in your film, for fuck's sake. Give us some dollar. I want some dollar for my band. No fucking feeding for my people. Stingy bastards. <laughs> well, as you said, pay your fucking taxes. Yeah. Making poverty history for members of you two. Well, come on, Kev. You know, they, they are the most famous Swiss band of all time. <laughs> If you know what I'm talking about, then I don't need to explain it. If you don't, go and Google it. I mean, it's never not going to be funny going through YouTube and not paying taxes, so that won't be the last time we cover it. There you go. So, we've talked about some huge artists being lower down the chart than we think. Similarly, some of the biggest selling albums of all time that we've covered on Album Clash are lower down the Album Clash chart than you might think they would be as well. So, albums that just miss out on our top 10, all of which being equal, uh, joint number 11, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles, 18 million confirmed certified sales there. Purple Rain by Prince, 15.7 million certified sales there. And Rumours by Fleetwood Mac, a massive 29.3 million certified sales. All of those three albums just miss out on the top 10. And languishing even further down our list in joint 41st place, the biggest selling album of all time with over 50 million certified sales, it's Michael Jackson's Thriller. He may have the biggest selling album of all time, but he does not have the highest scoring clash of all time. Now, I've mentioned Purple Rain and Thriller there. You might recall... We compared both of those two albums. We clashed those two albums against each other in our uh, rivalries, our beef season. And I told quite a number of humorous stories around the rivalry between Michael Jackson and Prince. And here is one such story involving a game of table tennis that took place, allegedly took place, I might say, between the Purple One and the King of Pop. Okay, so should we um, start getting into the album? No. Because I want to talk us through the next chapter in The Beef. Okay. This one I call Balls of Fury. <laughs> this is chapter five, by the way. So, 
in the late 80s, apparently Michael Jackson and Prince were sharing a studio, during which time they took their rivalry to the only place that you can take a rivalry of that magnitude, the ping pong table. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> So, according to engineer David Z, Prince won this epic battle of table tennis after Michael Jackson dropped his paddle to protect his face from a ball that Prince had smashed right at him. And apparently Prince crowed. Did you see that? He played like Helen Keller. Once again, I am obliged to say, allegedly... There you go. I mean, that that, that doesn't fit with your image of Prince as a, as a <laughs> fu- frenzied, furied ping pong player. Ping pong pugilist. <laughs> Double alliteration. Nice. A whiff waff whacker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. This is gold. <laughs> Second Twitter clip for this week's show in the bag. Thank you very much. (laughs) I really, really hope that's true. Honestly, it seems unbelievable. But I really, really hope it's a true story. (laughs) Okay, so moving on a little bit. uh, I mentioned that our most popular score is 16 out of 20. We have 10 albums that have scored that number, and they are tied in 26th place. So, I will list those in in no particular order. We have Public Enemy's album, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, from 1988. Kevin and I both rated that very highly. We both gave it an 8 out of 10. PJ Harvey's album, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea, in 2000. That also achieves 16 out of 20. Uh, And two indie albums from the 90s, Elastica's self-titled debut album, and The Charlatans' 1996 album, Telling Stories. Now, when we went through Telling Stories, I regaled Kev and you, our dear listeners, with uh, a tale of when I impressed and wowed, one might say, the parents of the Charlatans frontman, Tim Burgess, with my prowess on the guitar and vocals. Uh, Kev was not impressed with that story, but uh, never want to shun my moment in the limelight. I want to tell that story again. So here's that clip from that show. Can I add another fun fact, please? Sure. I have played this song at an open mic night in Moulton where Tim Burgess's parents were present. (laughs) I mean, that's so low wattage, it's like... Fuck I mean, off! <laughs> they both came to me and said how much they enjoyed it. They both clapped politely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did tell them my name was also Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to adopt you. <laughs> Fuck off. Have you ever played, have you ever played telling stories of Tim Birch's parents? No, you haven't. So fuck you. (laughs) Okay, I think we should move on to the next song. No, I don't want to move on to the next song when I keep talking about my moment of glory. (laughs) If that's your moment of glory, then you need to have words. (laughs) Go on, then. I I still think that's a good story. Sorry. But anyway, um, other albums that have scored 16 out of 20 in our list. So we did a Christmas Clash. 
coming up a year ago now. And Phil Spector's A Christmas Gift to You scored quite highly. That scored 16 out of 20. Uh, two more compilation albums. When we did our soundtrack season, our album Clash Goes to the Movies season, both the Pulp Fiction and Train Spotting soundtracks we awarded 16 out of 20. Uh, there are two live albums that we have given 16 out of 20. They are the Talking Heads 1983 album Stop Making Sense and James Brown's Live at the Apollo, which we went through fairly recently. And the last album that scored 16 out of 20 that I would like to mention is the 2018 Janelle Monet album, Dirty Computer, which Kev criminally underrated and gave it a mere 7 out of 10, uh, whereas I scored it 9 out of 10, and then I still think I'm right, uh, because I am. Um, uh, the reason I want to talk about that one last is because, well, if you recall that show, we were both in a very, very silly mood, uh, as exemplified by this clip, uh, where we talk about the song Pink, and undercut the message of feminist empowerment from Janelle Monet by... Well, judge for yourselves. Uh, so you've got Chris Martin talking about learning about himself during a fucking pandemic and his ex-missus selling fucking minge candles that explode. Um, and also saying, yeah, I lost control during, during the pandemic. Oh, she ate some bread. bread. <laughs> fucking hell, how did you cope, Gwyneth Paltrow? Fucking hell, I had to chip bomb and lost me mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the... The chips were cooked in uh, ethically sourced vegetable oil. So, you know, that's, that's... <laughs> I have no issue with people choosing ethically sourced food. I have an issue with Gwyneth Paltrow and her fanny candles. <laughs> Ex- exploding fanny candles. Fanny Roman candles? Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your, your editing's going to be have to be great for this one. <laughs> Sorry, no, I'm st- yeah, okay. So perhaps some of our language to describe the female anatomy isn't the best, particularly as we're going through this song, actually. Well, well, about to say, I was about to say, like, so should we um, smoothly segue from fanny candles to fanny pants? What a video! <laughs> what a video! Yeah, vagina trousers, fucking brilliant. <laughs> Our apologies, listeners. Yet this song is a celebration of the female anatomy. So I know that Janelle Monet, um, when speaking about this song, said uh, the reason that she called it pink is that the colour pink unites all humanity because it's the colour found in the deepest and darkest nooks and crannies of the human, of humans every uh, where. <laughs> That's what my note says. So Everywhere. everywhere. Brilliant. <laughs> I hope that's right. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And, and also use of nook and cranny. Nook and cranny, yeah. Is she a pensioner from Yorkshire? <laughs> <laughs> She's not been found in a bathtub going down a hill. <laughs> <laughs> not explaining that. If you don't know, then tough shit. <laughs> um, the video, directed by Dutch filmmaker Emma Vestenberg features Janelle Monet and Tessa Thompson and their backing dancers. And yeah, vagina pants, pink jumpsuits with trousers that are very clearly made to look like a vulva. And it's great. Yeah. I mean, as a expression of female empowerment, it's up where with that Japanese uh, woman who made a canoe out of her vagina. 
uh, you're going to have to fill me in there, mate. Sorry, I've got no idea what you're talking about. So the, there was a Japanese artist, I think it was last year, who got done by the Japanese authorities for obscenity because she made a canoe that was designed to to look like a vagina. Well, you just said she made it out of her vagina. Well, yeah, it was designed to look like it. But no, no, that's different. I said, uh, no, no, she made she made it in the mold of her vagina. It's like, like you, I, I was literally. <laughs> what you giving birth to a canoe? No, no, I was, I was... <laughs> some sort of cocoon. I don't know. Funny canoe. <laughs> Wasn't she a TV cook? I was, oh, damn it. I, was, I was about to say it was, um, was very popular on Scottish TV in the 70s. Levity is good. Uh, should we move we on? Slightly, I think we slightly undercut uh, Miss Monet's point, and we're really sorry about that. Uh, yeah, Pink's a fucking great song. I love it. Genuinely very, very sorry to Janelle Monet and fans of hers. But there you go. <laughs> Right, so it's time to start going through some of the charts. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the bottom 10 albums, so the 10 albums that we've scored lowest of our 68, and then the top 10. Uh, So I'll do the bottom 10 first. Well, it's actually a bottom 11, because we have three albums tied on joint 58th place, each of which has 13 out of 20, they being, firstly, two live albums, being Kick Out The Jams by the MC5, which we said starts brilliantly but ends with a massive letdown of a track, and then Live At Leeds by The Who, a a much revered album, which would be much better had it not got that disastrous 15-minute My Generation medley in the middle. And then the other album that we scored at 13 out of 20 was the first album we ever reviewed on Album Clash. That being Derek and the Dominoes, Layla and Other Love Songs. So uh, noted racist and COVID denier, anti-vax bellend, Eric Clapton, not even has the notoriety of being the worst album we've ever reviewed. So, sauce Eric. (laughs) Anyway, so scoring just half a point Less than those three in 61st place is another one of the first albums we ever reviewed uh, in only our second ever clash. And that is the Stone Roses disappointing sophomore album, The Second Coming. Half a point lower than that in 62nd place, we have three albums tied on 12 points. They are... Suede's 1996 album coming up, which I think we both said starts really strongly, but tails off massively. Uh, The other album from our Christmas Clash, the Motown compilation album A Motown Christmas, that also has 12 out of 20. And then the third album on that score is one of the first albums we did in our Electronica season, 1976's Oxygen by Jean-Michel Jarre. And... Kev wasn't a fan of that album. Uh, Kevin isn't a fan of Jean-Michel Jarre, which is fair enough. And uh, I'd just like to play you this clip in which he particularly enjoyed recanting the story of Jean-Michel Jarre's failed bid to play a huge concert in Mexico. I'm sorry. I have to, I have to interject and say what he, he later did in 1991 because it's fucking great. 
Please continue. So he later promoted a concert near the pyramids of Teotihuacan in Mexico to be held during the solar eclipse of the 11th of July, 1991. However, with only weeks to go, important equipment had not arrived and the sinking in the Atlantic Ocean of a cargo ship containing the purpose-built pyramidal stage and other technical and financial problems made staging the concert impossible. Jar's disappointment was so severe that he could not cope with Mexican food for two years. (laughs) Couldn't stomach a burrito. I'm not even going to comment on that. That's just going straight on Twitter. That's fucking magnificent. I've got nothing to say. That still makes me laugh. Can't stomach a burrito. Oh, brilliant. Anyway, the four lowest scoring albums that we have reviewed on Album Clash thus far... In 65th place, I've already mentioned it, it only scored 11 out of 20. It is the disappointment that was The Great Escape by Blur. The third worst album we've ever reviewed, in 66th place, only half a point lower than Blur, with 10.5 out of 20, is The Orbs Adventures Beyond the Ultra World. Now... That low score was entirely down to Kevin, who I think it's fair to say did not enjoy listening to this album. So here is how we both reviewed Adventures from Beyond the Ultra World by The Orb. Okay, on to The Orb's Adventures Beyond the Ultra World. You lead us off. So, I like the opening track. (laughs) I had an awful time listening to this every time I listened to it. It was such hard work. And like particularly when I got to the last song, it's like I've got 20 minutes of this. <laughs> like I've had a dreadful time and I've got another 20 minutes. I know exactly how long I've got to strap in for. I would never want to give a zero or a one because like that's unfair. Like there's more than enough going on here to justify giving above that. Because well, one, people can play instruments. there is an element of technical proficiency it's perhaps the most productive praise i've ever (laughs) there is a technical proficiency that i can appreciate and in some of the songs there are elements that i like but i had an awful awful experience listening to this album i never want to listen to it again so <laughs> I I can only I can honestly only come down with a three out of ten. I fucking hated it. Fuck off. Fuck I off. I had an awful three time. out of ten. Jesus Christ. Wow. I, I, okay, that's your opinion. I mean, your opinion can get all the way in the fucking bin. <laughs> but it's your opinion, so you know. All right, where am I going on Adventures Beyond the Ultra World? So I'm going above three out of ten. You know, this is a concept album, and it's an ambient electronic album. And I said that when I announced this clash a couple of weeks ago. I warned you, and that warning was for you as much as the listeners, Kev. Oh, yeah, I knew that. (laughs) It's a challenging listen. The first time I listened to it, I was taken aback because it wasn't what I expected because it's nothing like what their sound has become in the 20 or 30 years since. So fine. It's a challenging listen. But if you 
if you open yourself to what the album is, and I realise that comes across as a criticism of you personally, I don't mean it as such, but I can't think of a better way of putting it. If you open yourself to what the album is, if you let yourself be immersed in it, there is so much to offer. So look, as as I said earlier, that if you get it, then you get it. It never, it never got me. So I, I hold my hand up, you know, I, I don't feel you've you've criticised me there. I just, it never got me in the way that it needed to. Fine. Okay. It's not a pop album. It's an ambient album. The Orb are not my favourite act, but I do think they are one of the most important acts in the history of electronic music, particularly in the UK. And I think this album is one of its most significant touchstones. There are moments of genius on it. Little Fluffy Clouds transcends the concept album and actually does become a great pop song. I think A Huge Ever-Growing Pulsating Brain is a fucking great closer. I think there's so much to get into on that track. Every time I listen to it, I hear another element coming from somewhere which just fascinates me. I think there are some great rhythms on earlier tracks. I think Into the Fourth Dimension is really, really interesting. I think Perpetual Dawn is a really good early 90s house track. So actually, there's more to get into than just ambient noises. I am of a completely different opinion to you. Whilst I can understand your opinion, I think 3 out of 10 is ridiculously harsh. And I think you are being somewhat churlish actually (laughs) it's a better album than the white room because it sets out to be something and it maintains that consistency in a way that as i said the white room doesn't seven and a half out of ten i don't think it's worth an eight because i can understand why it's so difficult for some people to get into but it's well deserving of a seven and a half out of ten it doesn't win so it gets ten and a half compared to 14, so it's a comfortable victory for the KLF. Uh, but that's where I'm going. Okay, fair enough. I still think 3 out of 10 is a fucking ridiculous score for that album, by the way. It's just... No, sorry, Kev, you're absolutely wrong. It Anyway, it is languishing down in 66th place. Album Clash is nothing if not a democracy, so there you go. One place below that, our second worst album, allegedly, (laughs) that we've reviewed so far in 67th place with a mere 9.5 is the absolute shitstorm that is Myths of the Near Future by New Rave Indie Bellends Claxons, an album which Kev made me listen to as part of our Electronica season, despite it very clearly not being an electronic album, and in fact being a pretentious indie rock and roll wankfest. I fucking hated that album. I really resent Kev for ever making me listen to it. Again, he's not here to defend himself, so tough shit, mate. Uh, here is how we both reviewed Myths of the Near Future. So... <laughs> I mean, clearly through when we've been going through the album, you're a big fan of Claxons <laughs> and this album. So um, I'm expecting big scores here. Okay, so I'm going to try and say something constructive at least. It's not going to be nice. It's not going to be kind, but it's going to be constructive. I think this album thinks it's something it isn't. 
I think this album thinks it's subversive. I think this album thinks it is undercutting the industry and it is reshaping pop music into something new. Now, history has proven that to be an utter fallacy. But not just history, the band themselves proved it to be a fallacy. It is in no way subversive. They openly talked about wanting to sell a million records, for starters, and wanting to work with Stock Aitken and Waterman. So, no, I'm not having that at all. I, I spoke about Pink Floyd earlier on and how, for a long time, I struggled to get into Pink Floyd. And the barrier was that we're cleverer than you. Well, this is that in spades. I'm sorry, but just because you've got literary references in each of your songs, it doesn't mean you're clever. It doesn't mean your music is inherently more meaningful than anything else. It just means you've read a load of books. And fuck off, frankly. You just come across as pretentious. There are things I like. I do like the opening track. I do like Toto on the Timeline. And I think of As Above, So Below has got some interesting stuff in there. So it's not a complete disaster, okay? But in all three of those tracks, there are things I have reservations about. And so, all right, the gloves are off. I hate this. I hate the Claxons. As a whole, I hate the album. And so I was going to get my worst ever score, four out of ten. Wow. Really hate it. I'm guessing you're going higher, but where are you going? Okay. So I ain't going to win. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot that you say that I can agree with and elements that I don't necessarily agree with that I can certainly sympathise with. I am a little more favourable towards the album, but I do agree with you that there is a intellectual snobbery about the album that isn't borne out by the content. I think there are more high points than you do, I certainly think that the opening track is is really, really good and really affecting as well. Like, I've returned to it a couple of times, okay. but it's patchy as fuck. And I can't remember what my lowest score is, but I think this may well reach my nadir as well. So I'm not going as low as you, but I'm going a five and a half. So it's not your lowest score. You gave me here now a four... <laughs> And I still stand by that. And the thing is, I gave Be Here Now five, so Be Here Now is still the worst album we've reviewed. Quite rightly. <laughs> no, sorry, Kev, this is not as good as Be Here Now. <laughs> no, because Noel needs to learn. <laughs> no, Noel didn't like the Claxons, and actually, therefore, he's gone no. up in my estimation. Still a dick. <laughs> Seriously, I, 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 I hate that album, guys. I really do. Sorry. If, I mean, if you liked it, then I apologise. But no, you're wrong. Uh, right. And so, in 68th and last place, the album that we have scored the lowest of all we have reviewed with a mere nine out of 20. It was the fourth album we ever reviewed in our second ever clash. It was the much-hyped and extremely disappointing coke-fest noise dirge that is, of course, Be Here Now by Oasis. Here's how we reviewed it. So, Be Here Now, um, where have you come down on it then? I said earlier that I wanted to come back to the, the Mystique demos. 
So on that um, re-release in 2016, there was a, a deluxe version of the what was called the Chasing the Sun edition, and that included the Mystique demos. And I listened to those as I was preparing for this pod. So most of the tracks that found their way onto the album uh, are on those Mystique demos, plus a, a couple of B-sides. They're demos. It's, it's rough workings. Thank you. They're rough workings. But there's some good songs there. There's the genesis, there's the makings of some good songs there. Do you know what I mean? Sounds good when it's pared down, as it did with the reimagining in, in 2016, as I said. Songs like My Big Mouth and Getting Better Man, they sound much better when there's less noise in there. And it's a real shame, as you said, that the producers, because it's to be fair, it's Owen Morris and Noel Gallagher produced the album. They were both off their tits on coke that they that they were in that state that they didn't actually listen listen to it and think no we need to dial this down a bit there's a good album in there somewhere and listening to those mystique demos there is a good album in there somewhere not great because lyrically the songs are not as strong as the first two albums no denying that but there is a good album somewhere unfortunately it's not the one that made it to release as i said earlier I bought the vinyl. I've got a decent pair of headphones. I listened to it, trying to give it a chance. It's a fucking dirge at times. Five out of ten. So for me, I came, I came into it with the with the mindset that it's not that bad. Again, it's not what it's become to represent, and it certainly isn't as bad as the album that follows it. Um, standing on the shoulders of giants, which is a dreadful album. Yeah. But listening, listening to it back and trying to ignore nostalgia, trying to ignore everything else that came around it, I found it hard work. I found it a real struggle to listen to it and and keep my patience to listen to. I don't I don't have a vinyl version, so I have a C I have a CD version and I have have it electronically, so I have the option to skip. And the temptation <laughs> to skip was so, like I really had to be disciplined to listen to the out to the songs fully. It's a bloated mess. Four out of ten. Yeah, yeah, a mess is right. I mean, I stand by what I said. I do think there's a good album in there somewhere, but fucking hell, it was not the one that made it to records. So, yeah. I mean, personally, I think "Miss of the Near Future" is easily the worst album we've ever reviewed, but. Be Here Now deserves to be very low down our charts because fucking hell no. Just just lay off the coke. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that is our bottom 10. Well, again, bottom 11 in terms of the lowest scoring albums we've ever done. Now it's time to go to our top 10. So we have four albums in joint seventh place on 18 out of 20. In no particular order, they are uh, one of the most recent albums we reviewed, Nevermind, by Nirvana. In fact, in our most recent episode, we gave Nevermind 18 out of 20, both gave it 9. Next is a quite surprising entry, because it's not one that often comes up in conversations of best albums ever, but frankly it should do, because it's absolutely brilliant, and that is Turn On The Bright Lights, the debut album by Interpol from 2002, which we both thought was brilliant. Uh, then two albums that we classed against each other, which I've already mentioned actually today, they being two live albums at Folsom Prison by Johnny Cash and Aretha Franklin's incredible, amazing Grace. So 
we have then two albums in joint fifth place. First is Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan, which was not reviewed by Kev, but reviewed by Shell in our bonus clash just before our second series. It shares that position with Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions, which we clashed with Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, two extremely influential soul albums from the early 70s. And it is What's Going On that just pips Inner Visions to a place in the top three Uh, because What's Going On got 19 out of 20. Kev gave both those two albums 10 out of 10. Uh, I scored Innovision slightly lower, but yes, it is What's Going On by Marvin Gaye with 19 out of 20 that is joint third on our list. Here's how we reviewed it. What can you say about What's Going On? The A hasn't been said by countless people before us, and B, we haven't already said last week anyway. It is a phenomenally brave project and a remarkable achievement both musically and culturally. I mean, there's some glorious soundscapes. As I mentioned when we went through the album last week, it's got a lot in common with Pet Sounds in that thematically and sonically, it maintains that consistency throughout. And for a concept album, that is important. We talked about that when we did Sgt. Peppers, and I've got to give it some recognition for that. I mean, the high points are perfect. What's going on? Inner City Blues. They've got everything. Soul, funk, orchestration, rhythm. It's glorious. The album itself isn't perfect, okay? So it's not getting ten. There's a couple of tracks that I struggle to get into. But what I need to say is that every song has something to say and every song has something of value and of meaning. I said last week I can't put myself in 1971. I can't put myself in that mindset. I can only imagine what it must have been like. And the only word that I can come up with to describe that is revolutionary. Oh, this is hard. This is really hard. Nine out of ten. Nine out of ten. It's it's not perfect, but it is phenomenal. I really, really love What's going on? So I'm giving it 9 out of 10. Sorry, that was really, really long, Kev. Sorry about that. Okay. Go on. So, firstly, I want to say bastard because um, I had sort of, I was working in my head what I was going to say and I was going to use the word revolutionary and you nicked it right at the, right at the death. <laughs> so, what, as, as you say, it's it's difficult to kind of sum it up. The, it's visionary. It's it's transformative. It completely changes the musical landscape of what's possible with an album. As a concept album, it works perfectly. There isn't anything wrong with this album as far as I'm concerned. And amazingly, I am going to finally give a 10. Hey, there you go. <laughs> because it's perfect in my mind. There's nothing I can criticize about it. Fair enough. Okay. The other album that comes in on 19 out of 20 and makes joint third place in our list is the first album that I ever gave a 10 out of 10 to. And in fact, the first 10 out of 10 we ever saw on Album Clash, that being the classic 1966 Pet Sounds by The Beach Boys. Here's how we reviewed it. All right. So I've thought long and hard about Pet Sounds. I think it is a huge injustice that Pet Sounds doesn't have the recognition that Peppers does. It is every bit as influential as Sergeant Pepper's. The simple fact is, as we've already talked about, the reason we're doing this clash is because if Pet Sounds wasn't recorded, then Sergeant Pepper's wouldn't have been recorded. 
I'm not going to beat around the bush. This is the best album we've ever reviewed, in my opinion. And as a result, it deserves the best score we've ever given it. So I'm giving it 10 out of 10. I adore Pet Sounds and it gets 10 out of 10 for me. How about you? Wow. Okay. So for me, I don't think it's perfect. So we can't get a 10. However, I do think not only does it meet the brief as a concept album better than Sgt. Pepper's, it's also led to Sgt. Pepper's being recorded. And as a collection, as a bringing together of songs, it works better. It is one of the best things that we've reviewed so far. And we've reviewed some absolute fucking corkers. As I say, I don't think it's perfect. So I am coming down as a 9 out of 10. It is marginally better than Sgt. Pepper's, but a tiny, tiny amount. So, into the top two. And there are a clear two albums in the top two. So, in second place, with 19 and a half, it is 1991's Screamer Delicate by Primal Scream. An album which, by all rights, should have got 20 out of 20, but Kev is a massive shithouse and refused to give it 20 out of 20. Here is how we reviewed the album. Screamer Delica then. Over to you. So, Screamer Delica. So, it starts strong. It continues incredibly strong. It lifts you to some absolute fucking peaks. And it ends well. There isn't really a huge amount of weakness in this album. But I am loath to give anything a 10 out of 10. (sighs) So... I'm going to come down on it as a nine and a half out of 10 because, <laughs> because I'm a shit house and I won't give anything a 10 out of 10. You are a shit house. You've just said there's no low points on it. It's absolutely brilliant. Okay. So you've got nine and a half. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to show my hand first. I, I am giving this a 10 out of 10 and this is my second 10 out of 10, but this is more than deserving. <laughs> okay. So I'm giving it 10. Now I'm going to talk about what I think about the album. It's one of my favourite albums of all time. I think that's probably been pretty clear over the last 80 minutes or so. I think the way it is somehow manages to be, at the same time, utterly definitive and evocative of its time, as well as being completely ahead of its time and also timeless, is, as you said, it's alchemy. It's magic. It's magic. Mm-hmm. I have no other explanation it's magic. Four or five of the songs on this album are all-time classics. It's a work of genius by Primal Scream, by Andrew Weatherall, by The Orb, and by Jimmy Miller. Everyone involved deserves all of the plaudits. Sorry, Kev, it's a 10 out of 10. There's no weak points on the album. I debated whether to give Pet Sounds 10 out of 10. There's been no debate here. This is a perfect album. It's 10 out of 10. I mean, he literally says he cannot find anything to fault in the album and yet still refuses to give it 10 out of 10. Fucking hell. Again, not here to defend yourself, so you're wrong, I'm right. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so that brings us to the moment you've all been waiting for. I mean, you haven't. Uh, You were waiting for us to go through Pulp's different class today, but, you know, soz. Anyway, the top album so far well we'll never be beaten so we'll always be joint first the top scoring album on album clash one which i'm not sure will ever be matched i have to say is from our film soundtracks season 
and it is Ennio Morricone's iconic soundtrack to The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, the concluding part in the Man With No Name trilogy, one of the greatest westerns of all time, one of the greatest soundtracks of all time, and deserving of top spot in our album Clash chart. Here is what we said about it. Okay, so The Good, The Bad and The Ugly... It will come as absolutely no surprise to anyone that listened to last week's show that I am something of a fan of Ennio Morricone's work and in particular his work on the Dollars trilogy. And I think that The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is the pinnacle of that, as is the film for that matter, but that's a separate discussion. What we could have got into if we'd gone through the re-release expanded version of the soundtrack is how influential Morricone was on the likes of John Williams in particular in some of the motifs and some of the the ways that incidental background music is used actually to really good effect in moving a story along so there's a huge influence there which again as we were just talking about with the Godfather extends far beyond westerns I think Morricone was a pioneer and arguably the best there has ever been in creating score that could be played in a silent movie, actually, that doesn't need any dialogue because it tells you everything mm-hmm. you need to know about what's going on. As we said when we went through the trio in, in, in particular. Okay, I'm going to cut to the chase. There's not a bad tune on it. I think the whole thing is absolutely wonderful. I'm going to give it 10 out of 10, Kev. I think it's perfect. So that's all she wrote for me. 10 out of 10. How about you? Wow. So it's it's a wonderful, wonderful album. I think the music is perfectly pitched. It tells the story of, of the film in sonic form. Mm-hmm. Um, I can picture all the scenes through that music and that score. And it has some of the most iconic and important pieces of film score that have been hugely influential to lots of film composers, to directors. You know, the shadow of this music, it's cast large over tons of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was struggling to find anything that I didn't like about it. So I'm going to come down. Come on. I'm going to have I'm going to have to. There's so much beauty and so much perfection on there. I I think this is going to be our first ever double ten. Get in. It is right. Well done. Well, they uh, excellent. Good stuff. Uh, so there you go. That is our all-time album clash chart. Again, sorry we couldn't bring you what we had promised this week, but I wanted to put something out such that uh, you're not missing us for an entire month. We will be back in two weeks' time where we will go through Different Class by Pulp. In the meantime, however, I guess it is up to me to do our social outros because Kev's not here. So, you may be on Twitter, and you may, well, if Twitter still exists (laughs) by the time this show goes out, I've no fucking idea. And you may have noticed that in the, what surely are the final days of that hellscape, uh, most people have really stopped giving a fuck, even some major brands and their social media accounts. So, you may have 
picked up on the, in fairness, now deleted tweet from the uh, US Twitter feed of Tampax, uh, the well-known brand of female sanitary products, in which they said, you're in their DMs, we're in them. We are not the same. (laughs) They then doubled down on that by quote tweeting themselves saying, refuse to let Twitter shut down before we shared this tweet. (laughs) Uh, One of their rivals always then replied saying, how long have you been saving this one? Twix, the US Tampax Twitter account replied, since last period. Uh, that entire exchange has now been deleted but Wayback Machine has saved it for all time for posterity reasons so uh, yeah in the short time available before Twitter completely burns to the ground you can follow us at Clash Album if you like carefully curated quality content you can go to our Insta page at Clash Album and if you would like to sign me up to receive some female sanitary products that's absolutely fine because I will um, donate them to my local food bank. So please do so. That would be a lovely gesture. You can sign me up at albumclash at gmail.com. So once again, guys, sorry we couldn't bring you what we had planned to for this week. In a couple of weeks, we will be bringing you Pulp's Different Class uh, in the first half of our Sheffield city visit. In the meantime, however... I have, as always, been Timothy. So, that just leaves me to say, take care, guys. We'll see you soon. Ta-da. Bye-bye.